And so here is the end. I want to continue on in the vein that Jamie has led us in, uh, that we would be able to still and quiet our souls, even though uh, he's led us so well through the rhythm and the group up here has led us so well through the rhythm. Our, our hearts are still restless, so restless. And uh, so many things just start to bubble up. Uh, even in the first few minutes of a sermon, uh, it's hard for my heart not to be thinking about to-do lists. And it's probably much harder for your heart to not be thinking about what you need to pack for that trip or what you need to make sure uh, goes in that email this afternoon. So one last chance uh, before the sermon, which is going to be hopefully unsettling, to settle our hearts. Father, we pray now as a church that you would guide us, that you would direct us. And Father, right now we want to, whatever anxiety is bubbling up in our hearts, we want to bring that to your throne, Father. Hear your kids. Father, we want to still and quiet our souls, as it says in Psalm 131, like a weaned child before you. That means we need to bring the things to you that occupy our hearts and minds. So whatever is on our mind for this coming week, that appointment, that situation, that task, that conversation, we bring that to you now. Hear your kids. Father, whatever person is on our hearts, maybe it's our neighbor who doesn't know you, maybe it's our kids who have walked away from you, uh, maybe it's ourself. We can't quit thinking about ourselves. Maybe it's our parents or a shut-in that you wonder who's visiting them today. Whoever's most on our hearts now, we bring that person to you. And now, Father, lastly, our hopes and our dreams, the things that we would love to see you do in our lives, our prayers. Father, we bring those to you now and ask if it's your will that you would do those things that we could dream about happening in our lives. We bring those to you now. Hear your kids. So, Father, love us. Christ, remind us of your sufficiency and intercede for us. Holy Spirit, comfort us and convict us, we pray in your name. Amen. Hey, if you're uh, just joining us, if you're not a part of Mitchell Road, um, I just want to kind of set the stage for this sermon. This might be one of the hardest sermons that you'll hear all year long. So just get ready for that. Because I'm going to ask you a question today, and here's the question. How much do you really believe the gospel? 
I'm speaking more to Christians right now than I am non-Christians, although I will address non-believers or people transitioning in their faith. I will address that. But the question I have for you Christians, because I'm preaching to you, is uh, how much do you really, really believe the gospel? Most of us believe it up to a point. Elizabeth and I made our way through seminary basically by speaking. You know, during seminary, I had to work all through seminary. And uh, she was working as a teacher, so I put myself on the speaking circuit, as they say. Like one year, I remember I did like out of 12 weeks, I had 10 or 12 conferences back to back to back, junior high or uh, senior high conferences. And with the junior high, I used to do this a lot. I would say to the kids out there, you know, there'd be hundreds of kids out there, and I would say, who wants $5? And of course, everybody's like, yes, we want $5. So I pick somebody up from the crowd, and I pull them up, and I was like, here's $5. And they're like, okay, great. And uh, then I'd have a table, like a table about that size. It'd have a box on it, and it'd have all kinds of different things on there. It would have a $20 bill. It'd have a $50 bill. It would have an apple. It would have a Bible. It would have a pen, maybe a lollipop, maybe a leaf, just whatever, you know, random stuff I had. And I'd say, do you want that $5, or do you trust me to give you something else? And I would take all of those items, and I'd put them in the box, And I said, if you give me that $5, I will give you something out of this box, which I think is for your good. And about 20% of the people would walk away right there. They're like, I'm good with five. I don't don't need to play the game. Uh, Another group would say, okay, I trust you. They would give me $5. I'd rummage through the box. Finally, I'd pull out the 20 and give them the 20. And they know what's in the box, right? And I'd say, do you trust me? Do you believe, how much do you believe in me? Do you believe me enough to give me that $20 bill and I'll give you something out of this box which I think is for your good? And then that's where it starts to break apart. Like the people in the crowd are like, no, don't do it. He's going to trick you. He's going to give you the Bible and you already have one. You know, all that kind of stuff. And the kid, you can see the kid kind of working. He just wants to make the right decision. He's wondering about that girl who he has a crush on, what she thinks he should do. You know, all that like angst in junior high is happening. And finally, about 50% would say, I'll, I'll give you the 20. And I would always reach in and I'd give them a 50. And they would go, they would go nuts. They'd go crazy. And like now I would have to give them like Venmo. I don't know how we do it now. And they would go, oh, my word. And the kids are yelling from the, you know, audience, buy me a shirt, man, buy me lunch. You know, they're starting to yell all this stuff. And uh, I said, how much do you trust me? And now they know there's nothing left in the box of worth, right? You give me that $50, and I'll give you something from my pocket that I think is for your good. I've done that illustration probably 40 times. I've never had one person take me up on that. Never one. Every one of them walks away everyone so the kid will go sit down and i'll say here's what you could have had and i'll pull out a hundred dollar bill and the whole crowd's like oh man you're such an idiot you should have never done it and i'm sure all of those kids are now in counseling because of that one experience <laughs> where i made them an illustration but it proves the point i'd have a whole talk based on that it proves the point most of us will trust god up to a point and then we get comfortable we're like, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable right here. I don't know if I need to risk anymore. I don't know if I need to take another step. I'm, I got 50 bucks. I didn't come in with 50 bucks. And I'm walking out with 50 bucks. Why, whisk, why, why chance it? Why go to the next step? Why should I do that? I'm really comfortable now. So friends, how much do you believe the gospel? Because we're going to be pressed on that. The story of Jonah, if you're joining us, we're reading through the Bible. 
all year long, and we get to Jonah, written around 757, 60 B.C., one of the first uh, minor prophets written, you know, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. They're not in chronological order, but this would be the first. This is before, as we've talked about, the Assyrians and the Babylonians and all the exile passages. And here Jonah is sent to the Ninevites. Even if you're not a believer, you probably at least casually know the story that he's called to go to the city of Nineveh and preach there, and he does not want to do it, so he boards a ship to flee the Tarshish. They have all these problems, and so they throw him off as this kind of sacrifice. He gets swallowed up by a fish, not a whale. There's no whale mentioned here by a fish. He gets spit out. He prays this prayer. He reluctantly goes to Nineveh. He preaches, half-heartedly preaches to them. They all repent, and then we pick up Chapter 3, verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God relented the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And now to our text. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord, and he said, Oh, Lord, is this, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? In other words, I knew you were going to save them. That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and he sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. A booth is just a tent. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow which came into being in the night and perished in the night, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left hand and also much cattle? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What I want to do is take verse 2, that God is gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And we're going to use that to frame out the rest of the passage. This is a very, very familiar biblical formula. And here's the question. How much do you believe the gospel? Do you believe that God is really, really gracious? That's the first point, that God is gracious. Look what displeased uh, Jonah. It displeased Jonah exceedingly. Why? The grace of God given to the Ninevites. Jonah is just like us in this. I want grace for me. I want everybody to forgive me. I want all the grace. I want all the mercy. But you people out there, y'all need the judgment of God. You need the wrath of God. You need to reap what you've sown. I've worked so hard to get here. I've worked so diligently to be here but I want you other people to pay. If we're honest, 
if you have the ability to be honest right now in your heart, most of us love grace for ourselves and wrath for everybody else. How much do you believe the gospel? One of the ways that you can tell is who, if they showed up in heaven, would you be angry about? That's one of the ways you can tell. You see that person that bullied you in junior high, and you see him worshiping at the throne. Who would you say, no, not him. I wanted him to pay. But God is gracious. It is his character to be gracious. And here Jonah begins the history of evangelism. Now, the Israelites um, were not just tribal. They always welcomed in the sojourner. They always welcomed in the foreigner. That was always true. They were never trying to be a clique. But this is one of the first passages where somebody goes out to a foreign place, Nineveh, just to preach. And then we have a long history of evangelism from Jonah. Sometimes it's forced, top down. For example, Constantine, 313, uh, he became a Christian as a Roman Empire and said, okay, everybody in this kingdom now has to be a Christian. If you're not, off with your heads. And then it became uh, about your witness. You know, you just be a good witness. You don't have to say anything, just preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. You know, Frank, St. Francis of Assisi. And, and then it became about defending the faith. Matter of fact, in like the 90s and early 2000s, it was all about apologetics. We have to have all the right answers. Or it was about having the upper moral hand or creating some kind of theocracy where everybody would have to kind of come alongside. Evangelism has taken all of these kind of various movements throughout society. But most of the time, we are not answering the questions that people are asking. And I speak to a lot of non-believers. And you know what people are asking? Is God gracious? Is he merciful? Is he slow to anger? And is he abounding in love and mercy? Because you say you're a Christian and you're mean. And all the Christians I know are short-tempered. And yet you're supposed to reflect your God. Matter of fact, your theology says you're supposed to be coming like your God, taking on his character. And when I look at you and I look at the things that you lust for, whether it's power or greed or money, it doesn't seem like it reflects who God is. So I just need to know, is God really gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in love and mercy? Dallas Willard, he puts it this way. Famous professor from uh, USC, uh, Southern California, now deceased. The world can no longer be left to mere diplomats or politicians or business leaders. They've done the best they could, no doubt. But this is for an age for spiritual heroes. I don't like that word hero. But it's his quote, so I can't pull it out. A time for men and women to be heroic in their faith and their spiritual character and power. The greatest danger to the Christian church today is that of pitching the message too low. That's the greatest danger. In other words, what Willard says is the greatest danger to the church is just saying all Christianity is is a group of people that think like you and look like you and like to worship, and you have a God who will save you from your sins. That's pitching the message way too low. Where instead, what God says throughout Scripture is, I've actually made you for my purpose. I've made you in my image. And I am taking you home to a new heavens and to a new earth. And I will walk with you all of your days. I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. I'm going to give your life worth and meaning and purpose and joy if you just trust in me. And at that last day, I'll wipe every tear from your eye. 
I'll make death cease. I will eradicate every sin or pain, and I will be your God, and you will be my people for all of eternity. That and nothing less. But we pitch it way too low, don't we? Even as Christians, we don't have the full vision. Sometimes we need spiritual smelling salts so that we can wake up and remember what God is doing. How much do you believe the gospel? And do you believe that God is gracious and he's gracious in justifying us? Uh, Justification, as Thomas Watson says, God does not justify us because we're worthy, but by justifying us makes us worthy. By justifying, he makes us worthy. That Christianity, if you're not a believer, let me speak to you here for a second. That Christianity really is you are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. It's not you're justified by faith alone and having to like Andrew Peterson and having to like organ music and having to vote a certain way uh, and having to wear certain clothes. You are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. God is gracious, number one. Number two, God is merciful. Look at verse five and six. God gave him this plant, and he's exceedingly glad. He went from exceedingly displeased to exceedingly glad. What changed? A little shade. That's the only thing that changed. And now he gets a little comfort. And what this reflects about our hearts is this, that we care way more about our comfort than we do God's mercy for the lost. Way more. We, we, let me just repeat it again, because part of my wounds from a friend can be trusted, and this is kind of an abnormal service if you're just visiting us for the first time. But, but part of my uh, prayerful goal today is to convict us on some of these things. We care way more about our comfort than we do the mercy of God given to other people. And so he got this plant. He got some shade. He's exceedingly glad. And we will give all kinds of excuses for why we're not sharing our faith or why we're not talking to people about who Christ is. And they're almost all based around our comfort. Let me give you four. Four excuses that most people make. Number one, theology. Look, Andy, you've talked about, you know, reformed theology and God's sovereignty and election. And uh, because of all those things, people are going to be saved or not saved. If you are saved, nobody can snatch you out of God's hand. So I get all of that. So why do I need to evangelize at all? Here's why. Because Matthew 28, the Great Commission, God says, go make disciples. That's not given to pastors and missionaries. That's given to everybody. Now go make, if you're a Christian, go make disciples. And 1 Timothy 2, 4, 2 Peter 3, 9, God wills, God desires all people to know him. So you you can't hide behind your theology, but we do. We think, ah, I don't have to worry about this too much. I'll let the other missionaries, the pastors do that work. Number two, we hide behind our training. I haven't been trained. I don't, this comes from the apologetic movement in the 90s and 2000s where we felt like we have to talk people and argue people into the faith and be able to answer every question. And if we can't, why start the conversation? And so people say, I, they're going to ask me a question I don't know the answer to. I haven't been trained. If y'all would only do an evangelism class, then I'll evangelize. No, you won't. 
There are more videos on YouTube to answer every possible apologetic question. It's not about that. It's because we're scared. We're hiding behind that. Look, evangelism and sharing your faith is on-the-job training. I can watch YouTube videos all day, and I do, about how to make a beef wellington or hit a tight draw. But until I get my hands on the dough or my hands at the range, it's just not going to happen. So much of this is learning just how to, in natural conversation with people, say things like this. Hey, I don't think you go to church, and I totally get that. But why don't you go to church? It's not even inviting them. You're just trying to listen, and you're just trying to learn. You're trying to engage with somebody who's on this journey of life with you. You don't need to be trained. Plus, God says in Luke chapter 12, I'll give you the answers that you need. And if you don't have the answer, and can I say this without sounding pompous? I'm pretty well trained. Like, I know most of the answers. I went to seminary. I'm getting a PhD right now. I'm working on all of this. I'm pretty well trained. But I still get asked questions that I don't have the answer to. And you know what that means? It means I get to have another conversation with the person. Because I say, I actually, I don't, yeah, I don't know about the Nephilim. I'm so sorry. Uh, can we have coffee next week? I get them on the line again. I get to have another conversation with them. Here's number three. I'm, I'm tempted. I'm tempted to be ashamed. Ashamed of the gospel. Ashamed of other Christians. Ashamed of what the answer is going to be when they ask me about the crusades. And look, this is the one I'm the most sensitive to. I saw on Twitter the other day, somebody posted, it was a non-Christian friend of mine, atheist friend of mine, who, uh, I shouldn't say, that overstated a little bit. They're a Twitter friend. We've conversed on Twitter. I've never met him. Um, I have a lot of those people. They really like me, Twitter friends. Uh, but they posted a video of a street preacher, I think in Portland, and he was preaching this kind of hellfire brimstone message, and one person walked by and said, man, you need to sit down. That's all the person said. And then the preacher turned to him and cussed him out one side and the other. And they put on Twitter and say, this is what Christians are. And I, <laughs> I get that. I get that we can be ashamed of the people that represent Christ that we feel like are not like us. But you know what that street preacher represents? It's not about being perfect. That justification by faith alone is actually justification by faith alone. And when we're all a mess and when we don't have it together, that just proves the grace of God for us. I could talk about that a lot more. Uh, lastly, to be thoughtless. You know, we just don't think, because it's Greenville, right? We just don't think people need the gospel. I have an eight-minute drive from my house to the church. And depending on which way I go, I can pass four or five churches. And I know most of the pastors, and they're great churches. They're really good churches. I love all, all of those guys. And so in the eight-minute drive, I passed four or five churches. And so we can just assume in Greenville, South Carolina, everybody here knows. There's, there's no need to talk about it. And even if somebody's not a Christian, if you live in Greenville, you're generally still friendly. I went to visit my sister when she was uh, at, in Philadelphia. She lives in Cincinnati, but she was in Philadelphia. And I went up to visit her. We were walking down downtown Philadelphia and she said she turned to me and she said would you stop it and I said what am I doing she said you keep making eye contact with people and waving at them we're gonna get killed I was like 
I just, this is what we do in Greenville. You know, you wave at people when you're passing them on the road. You've never met them before. You're like, hey, man, I mean, that's what we do here. People are so nice, and we can assume because they're nice, they know the king of kings. And so we just become thoughtless. I'm going to roll out this quote, Penn Jillette. I read it last year. I'll tell you that story in a second. Atheist Penn Jillette who said this, I'm sorry to do this to you. I don't respect people that don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? Okay, I'll tell you what happened between the services. As I said, I try to read that quote about once a year because it takes a while to digest. How much do you have to hate somebody to know what you know and choose not to find a way to share it? A guy came up to me in between the services and he said, you do read that about once a year. The last time I was here, and he said, I've visited a couple times since then, but he lives outside of town. He said, you read that on April 10th last year because I wrote it down. And I thought, I need to have that conversation with that guy who's living on my farm. And I didn't do it. And the next week after you read that quote on April 17th, he took his life. And I didn't do it. Now, I'm I'm not saying that to make you feel guilty or ashamed or to press the point too much. But friends, at the end of the day, like I've told you so many times, let's keep talking about it. We're a church, not a country club. It's not just about gathering homogeneous people that look like us and think like us. And I don't know what's happening there. Just going (laughs) to let that do what it needs to do. It's not about that at all. It's about whether we really believe that we're adopted. Look at this quote from Thomas Watson. A man adopts one for his son and heir that does not at all resemble him, but whoever God adopts for his child is like him. He not only bears his heavenly father's name, but his image. And as image bearers, how much do we believe the gospel? As image bearers, it's on us to share that image of God. We'll get to some practical things in a second. I'm going to close this, so don't worry. Number three. God is slow to anger. Uh, Look at verse 7 and 9. He's exceedingly glad, then the plant withers from this worm, and all of a sudden he loses it again. He just can't keep it together. And at this point, here's why I would say this represents God is slow to anger. At this point, God the Father has every right to bring down wrath on Jonah and say, You spoiled brat. Who do you think you are? I just let you be a part of one of the greatest revivals in human history. The Ninevites came to me and want to repent. And all you're concerned about is your shade and your comfort. And now you're moaning about all of this. God is so slow to anger. He just simply asks a question. Verse 9 does it do well for you to be angry? How's this, how's this working out for you? And maybe, maybe, just maybe, this passage is not about Nineveh repenting. Maybe it's about God teaching Jonah how to repent. 
And maybe that's our leading step uh, when we interact with the outside world is not being a Christian that has it all together and has all the answers and has it all figured out. Maybe our leading step to people that don't know the Lord is this. I need Jesus way more than you do. And, and I am a mess. I'm growing in my sanctification, but I am a mess. And sometimes when I talk with non-believers, I'll say to them this. I actually, if you don't mind, I would love for you to pray for me this week. And they'll say, I don't know how to pray. And see what I did there? Now I get to explain to them how to pray. And they ask for it. They ask me to explain that to them. It's a beautiful little trick that you can do. But nonetheless, they'll say, I, I will pray for you. And they started a conversation based on me wanting to be sanctified and me repenting and me saying, I need the Lord. Would you help me out? Because we're all in this together. We desperately need to grow in our sanctification. As J.C. Ryle says, tell me not of your justification unless you have some marks of sanctification. Boast not of Christ's work for you unless you can show us the Spirit's work in you. Maybe that's part of living as a Christian in this world today. What God does in us as much as through us. Lastly, God is abounding in love. Look at verse 11. Here the Lord says, And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, which there's more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right from their left, and also much cattle, what would we do with the Ninevites? We would survey the city, and we would say, They're also lost. They're pagans. They don't know their right hand from their left. There's no way they're going to come to a saving faith. There's no way I'm going to share the gospel with them. I'm just going to write them off. You know what God's heart does? Pity actually means compassion. I, like, I look at Nineveh, and you know what he calls it? He calls it the great city. I look at Nineveh, this great city. And I'll put it in your context, right? I look at L.A., I look at Chicago, I look at Portland. Look at New York. You pick some city that you've kind of written off to liberalism or whatever. You've said, yeah, whatever. I'm so glad I don't live there. God, with his heart, looks at those cities and says, I have compassion for those people. They don't know their right from their left. They are completely lost. Who will go? Who will tell them? Do we really believe in glorification? Richard Cecil there are three things that the true Christian desires in respect to sin. Justification, that it might not condemn. Sanctification, that it might not reign. And glorification, that it might not be. Now let me just close uh, two things. Let me speak real quick to believers and then real quick to non-believers. Real quick to believers. I, I do want to say this. What if we as a church could become this? My last prayer... Uh, before the Lord takes me from this pulpit, which is uh, your decision or the Lord's decision, I have no plans to go anywhere, but um, y'all can run me out anytime. We're Presbyterian. There's actually a legit way to do that, by the way, uh, which is why I love being a Presbyterian. You, you, there is a way to get me fired. Um, but I've asked the Lord, if it would please you, don't take uh, this opportunity from me until the last thing drops at Mitchell Road, which is we finally become a church that actually loves the lost. And that we have a hard time scheduling baptisms because there's too many adult ones. We're good with the kids. We got kids coming out of our ears here. 
which is wonderful. But that we would have a hard time scheduling adult baptisms. And, and we're constantly bringing people into our journey group that know nothing about the Trinity. And we've got to figure it out and how to explain it. And, and we're constantly sharing our faith. And so here's the prayer. Would you ask the Lord today to make you comfortable with risk? To make you comfortable with faith? Because most of us in this room are playing it way too safe and then we wonder why our Christianity doesn't feel alive. We're playing it way too safe financially. We're playing it way too safe with any number of reasons. And look, there is, I reject a one-size-fit-all like way to do this. I'm I understand. I'm really good in conversation. I've thought about these issues a lot. I don't mind having these conversations. That might not be you. That's okay. But you probably know somebody in need. And you're a great cook. So make them a casserole, make them a cake, take it to their front doorstep and say, I'm only doing this because Jesus told me to. But if you ever want to come to church with me, you're more than welcome. Or find that person that got rejected from the soccer team, that got benched, never made it. Or, or, or find that person that got demoted in the job, somebody who's hurting and take them out for coffee and uh, work up the courage that at the very end, you'll try to just drop, hey, you know, I'm going to pray for you, and uh, God really loves you. I mean, it, it really is that simple. But find your personality, how it works. And it doesn't matter how we do it, that we do it, that we say this is this God who's loving and kind and merciful. And now for the Christian, the non-Christian, let me read you this one quote. And I know there's a, some of you in the room today, some listening. But if you're not a believer um, I want to process this quote with you just real quick. C.S. Lewis, Abolition of Man, says, You cannot go seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. It is good that the window should be transparent because the street or garden beyond is opaque. How if you saw through the garden too? <clears throat> it is no use trying to see through first principles. If you see through everything, then everything is transparent. But a wholly transparent world is an invisible world. To see through all things is the same as not to see. I know that's philosophical. Let me summarize it for you. If you always say, it can't be that, it can't be that, God can't be that, it can't be that, it can't be If you're always deconstructing and discounting everything, you'll never actually see out the window to the garden. And there's two gardens. There's actually three. There's their garden of Eden, which means you were made, you were actually made for a purpose. Uh, and, and you're not somebody that's just going to be thrown away. God actually knows you and loves you. There's a second garden, the garden of Gethsemane, where God's covered all of your sin and shame. And then there's the third garden of the new heavens and the new earth, where God really wants to bring you home and make you everything that you hoped you could be a completely glorified, eternal creature. But as Lewis goes on to say, atheism turns out to be too simple. If the whole universe has no meaning, we should have never found out that it had no meaning. Because everything's meaningless, we would never figure that out. The fact that you think there should be meaning means there's, <laughs> there's got to be something else. And when C.S. Lewis became a Christian in the Trinity term of 1929 at Magdalen College in Oxford, he bent the knee 
And he wrote, I am tonight the most dejected, reluctant convert in all of England. In other words, I didn't want to follow Jesus at all. But the plot line of the Bible is the only one that seems to make sense of this world. Both the sin of it and the hope of it. And so, non-Christians, it's okay to be a dejected, reluctant convert. But to say, I actually just don't see any other way. This is the only thing that starts to make sense. Even though I don't like those Christian people. Even though I don't like Andrew Peterson. So sorry, Andrew, if you're listening. Even though I don't like all of these things, I, this makes sense. For Christians, I close here. For Christians and non-Christians, here's what we have in common. We both need the same thing, and here it is. We need a God who's gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in love and mercy. In the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Father, we pray uh, that we would be convicted.